Breaking It Down with Frank McKay. This is 1039 LI News Radio. I'd like to welcome everyone to Breaking It Down. Frank McKay here. So much more importantly, a uh, man who's had a legendary career. It is has been unbelievable. Uh, a couple of Grammys, a couple of Emmys for his musical contributions, and uh, really uh, just a, a a unique talent. Christopher Surf is our very special guest, and you know his music uh, from Sesame Street. Uh, a groundbreaking show that came out in 1969. I always say uh, so much happened in 19 in 1969, and uh, you know you talk about the moon landing and Woodstock and, and Charles Manson. People forget Sesame Street. Uh, what a game changer it was, and uh, one of the uh, one of the men uh, responsible for, and one of the people I should say responsible for uh, the, the greatness of that show is here with us, Christopher Surf. How are you? I'm great, and thanks so much for having me, Frank. Yeah, and I should mention Between the Lions, too. I mean, that was another uh, an, another tremendous success. Uh, but uh, there's so much in your career. If you don't mind, uh, Chris, can we start from uh, the beginning? Where were you born? Where were you raised? I was born and raised in New York City, where I still live today. I've only moved about 10 blocks from where I grew up. So, so uh, New York is my home. When you were when you were growing up, how soon before you got bit by the music bug? Oh, that was pretty early. Uh, my parents were not musicians. Uh, my dad was a pretty well-known publisher, as you probably know, Bennett Surf. But he loved music, and and that was infectious. And uh, I fell in love with rock and roll when it was starting. And uh, I had had piano lessons, which were not in rock and roll. But I picked up enough from those to be able to learn to pick out those easy four-chord songs that were popular at the beginning of doo-wop and, and uh, rock music. So I learned to play a little bit, and that's how I got into it. You mentioned doo-wop and the early rock. Uh, was there one, one individual artist or group uh, that stood out to you that kind of really made that impression? It's hard to pick one, but I certainly could pick a few. I think uh, Alan Freed's radio show played a lot of people like the Moon Glows and the Penguins and a lot of those doo-wop groups. And I love the triplet chords that are played on the piano on those records. So I kind of learned how to do that myself. And uh, certainly a Little Richard and Fats Domino, maybe more than anyone, Fats Domino I really admired. And I loved the way he played. I couldn't completely do it, but I tried. You know, the the romantic notion of the doo-wop group, groups on the, on the street, and, you know, I was born in 67, so I didn't have the opportunity to see it, unless it was gimmicky, you know, unless it was something that was right. there for, uh, you know, to, to make the point. Uh, were there such groups, and, and you grew up in Manhattan, and I imagine that's where we'd be seeing those things. You know, we hear about Dion and the, the Bronx, and we hear about uh, different things happening in Brooklyn and Jersey and different things. Uh, what was Manhattan like as far as the doo-wop groups? Did you see street corner doo-wop? Well, uh, not in our own neighborhood, to be honest. Uh, and I wish we had, but I certainly was well aware of them, and I followed them after once I'd heard that music, I just fell in love with it. And, uh, you know, a lot of my friends and I tried to do it. 
we we weren't unbelievably good at it, but at school we had you know a little doo-wop group, and and uh, I learned to play some of those early songs with my friends. You know, a, a little later than the doo-wop, and a little later than the you know the the early rock uh, came the folk movement in in Greenwich Village, and being in Manhattan, you're, you're you know technically you're close to everything there. But did you uh, did you witness any of the folk movement that was happening? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, McDougal Street, definitely. But even more so, uh, I was lucky enough to go to Harvard, and uh, there was a club there called Club Forty Seven, on at Forty Seven Mount Auburn Street, where Joan Baez would frequently play. And she used to occasionally bring along a friend of hers who was just starting out named Bob Dylan. So we got to hang out and listen to that music a lot while I was in school. And obviously that was very influential, not only to my musical career, but to my uh, satiric career. I, I ended up writing a lot for National Lampoon and the Harvard Lampoon before that. And, uh, you know, the protest music was certainly influential in what we did there. In, in mentioning uh, satiric uh, uh, music or, or satiric writing, uh, the first thing that comes to my mind always is National Lampoon, and you talk about uh, being involved in in some of the uh, the great entities in entertainment, and you know, in Sesame Street uh, for sure, and in um, education. But National Lampoon is a. Uh, we could probably do a whole hour on on the impact that National Lampoon had, um, uh, you know, early on and how it changed the world. But before we do, let me remind folks that are just tuning in or maybe uh, maybe turning on their radios a little late. Christopher Surf is our very special guest. He's a Grammy Award winner, an Emmy Award winner, multiple Grammy and multiple Emmy Awards and, and so many other awards along the way and accolades. What a career this man has had. I'm honored, absolutely honored to have Christopher Surf here with me. Frank McKay here with Chris. Uh, Chris, uh, speak to National Lampoon for a moment. Uh, at the At the time you were involved with them uh, did you did you realize the impact that they were they were having or was it was it obvious at that point or uh, was it yet to come well I think it was a little bit noticeable but I don't think any of us imagined it would become what it did uh, you know because many people that were part of it got really famous uh, later on all the Saturday night people were part of National Lampoon first, for example. And I don't think we realized as the National Lampoon's little radio show was starting, what that would become. Uh, and as far as Sesame Street goes, uh, I think we all had great ambitions for it, uh, but it's, nobody could have predicted it would become what it has. It's been on the air for 52 years and it's still going. You know, who, who could have, when I first got there, a guy in the music department took me aside and said, don't quit your day job, you know, because <laughs> it's a TV show. Yeah. Uh, but there it still is. So um, we've been very lucky to be part of it. I think it's, I had so many amazing colleagues in both places. And a lot of people worked on both, by the way, both National Lampoon and Sesame. Wow. I mean, those two those two names don't 
uh, don't go together so easily. No. But when you think about humorous writing and and making a social point and uh, and satire and parody, which were not the principal reason for Sesame Street, but it's a reason that a lot of adults tuned in and let their kids watch it because they enjoyed it themselves. And uh, John Weidman uh, and Paul Jacobs and Sarah Jerky and any the Muppets even, you know. Uh, <laughs> were part of Saturday night. The people forget the Muppets were in the early scenes of that. So there was a lot of crossover. Yeah, amazing. If you think about it. Uh, both very smart shows. And, it, you know, when you get the parents engaged in their children's shows, um, you, you, you're almost certain to have a, have a hit on your hands, right? Now, looking back, it's easier to say that. But the parents realize that, hey, this is good for the kids. One of the things that always struck me, and, and Mississippi, I think, is where, um, where Jim Henson uh, was born and raised. And, That's right. And Mississippi and some other southern states, maybe Arkansas, actually banned Sesame Street for some terrible reasons. I mean, let's face it, some really terrible reasons. And, uh, and uh, you know, the bottom line was, uh, was bigotry. They, uh, they didn't want... Uh, they didn't want the idea of an urban setting uh, being there, and I, I forget the exact wording that uh, that the PBS in uh, Mississippi gave, but it was uh, you know you you cringe now, and I have, have to imagine that the good people would have cringed then, but that they weren't they weren't ready, that the public down there was not ready. Well, the public was ready. To be honest, the public was ready. Uh, it was just that the station at the time wasn't ready. Uh, in fact, uh, a local station in Mississippi picked it up immediately. A local commercial station uh, picked it up when this, the public television wouldn't show it. And it became so popular almost right away that the PBS station, and I don't blame PBS, it was the local station, changed their mind. Later on, by the way, that station became wonderful. Uh, uh, and... Uh, I had the privilege of working in Mississippi for many years with Mississippi Public Television uh, in a later generation because they were one of the producers of our Between the Lions show that you mentioned earlier. So hopefully uh, over time, some things did change a bit. Yeah, well, that's uh, that's terrific, and it's wonderful insight to get from somebody who's there. I'm just going off of uh, little clippings and and third-hand information to get it from from you. Uh, just is is just wonderful. Christopher Surf once again is our very special guest. Uh, Chris is a recipient of of Emmy awards and Grammy awards, multiple on both of those ends, and and so many others uh, along the way. And we're talking about his career, but uh, really Sesame Street and the impact that it had, uh, 50, uh, 50 plus years and, and counting. And uh, Chris, I think there was, a, there was a quote, maybe it was Time Magazine a couple years ago when it hit the 50th anniversary, and, and I'm paraphrasing because I don't have it right in front of me, but uh, the, the thought was that either Sesame Street has created the most educated generation in the history of the world, or it can be blamed for uh, uh, ADD and uh, and attention deficit disorder and short uh, you know, <laughs> everything else. Uh, I, I I actually go with the former and anything uh, you know positive on Sesame Street's end. 
uh, you know, I'd have to uh, I'd have to echo. But it is an interesting question. Well, yeah, and it's not. I mean, even all of us who are obviously on the side of all the good the show has done, uh, you know, we do have to think about those things. And and uh, certainly, uh, the show was designed to appeal to short attention spans that kids might have. Uh, but they had those already. You know, it's not like we. <laughs> uh, Joan Cooney, Joan Cooney, who was the genius who brought this all up, uh, realized uh, that uh, advertising was kids were learning advertising songs. They could sing the Budweiser beer song at home, even if they didn't know how to read yet. You know, so she thought, why can't we use the power of advertising to teach kids letters and numbers, or even more important? about getting along with each other, you know, and that's what she set out to do. And luckily, a bunch of us got hired to help. Joan Cooney, uh, you, you, you mentioned uh, the, the word genius. I've always looked at, I don't know her. Uh, everything I've read and heard about her has just been extraordinary. Uh, can you give us a little rundown? Uh, and, and maybe if you can, start with the, the first impression that you had of Joan when upon meeting her. Sure. Uh, I'd love to mention, if I can, Prent, uh, if you don't mind my throwing in a plug for my friends here, that there's a movie app called Street Gang that's come out recently and just became available on HBO that uh, tells the story of those early years in a wonderful way and tells a lot about Joan Cooney's original work. So I'd love to recommend that to anyone who Definitely. has access to that called Street Gang, as I said. But having said that, uh, if you watch that movie, you'll hear what I'm about to say. Joan uh, was a documentary uh, producer of grown-up documentaries, but she was more and more concerned about the gap between in learning between educated, uh, you know, middle-class kids and poor kids who didn't have access to the same language and and experiences. So they were coming to school behind. And they never had a way of catching up. And she wondered uh, whether television could help that. She had a conversation with a, a friend of hers named Lloyd Morissette, who was kind of the father of Sesame Street, if Joan is the mother. And Lloyd was at the Carnegie uh, Corporation then. And they decided to give Joan a grant to see if she could pull this off. And God knows she did. So as you asked, when I met her, I met her because she knew I was um, working on beginning reading stuff at Random House on beginner books with Dr. Seuss, among other things, and trying to make learning to read fun. And I was interested in working with Sesame Street as it was starting. Some of my friends were involved in it. I was interested in maybe working with them to do some books at Random House. And she, Joan said, sure but why don't you come here and do the books and we can work with Random House with you working for us instead of for them. And uh, I couldn't resist. I, I saw those Muppets and I was hooked. <laughs> yeah, uh, just uh, amazing. Uh, and the impact the Muppets had on uh, the uh, on the entertainment industry, really, if you think about it. Uh, let me ask you the same question about Jim Henson. Uh, what was your first impression of meeting Jim? Uh, mind boggled. I, I just, I think he and Dr. Seuss, the idea that I could work with those two different guys, 
I mean, nobody compares <laughs> to either of them. Jim was a gentle soul, but very silly and crazy beneath the surface. You know, that he was a great comedian and a brilliant puppeteer. That goes without saying. But he also was a brilliant collaborator. And even though he was an immense success, he always surrounded himself with talented people. He was never threatened by others. So Frank Oz and Jerry Nelson and Franny Brill and all those great, great puppeteers. You know, Frank is probably the only person I know who's as good at it as Jim, but Jim was happy to have him there. You know, it wasn't like, oh, I can't have him because he's better than I am. The two of them together made magic. You're hearing the voice of Christopher Surf. Uh, again, multiple Grammy Award and multi, <clears throat> multiple Emmy Award winner, and uh, he is boy. He's seen a lot. His uh, his life and career is like a history in in entertainment and a different side of entertainment. Uh, some you know very special niches there, and and one of them you know we we touched on is uh, uh, you know National Lampoon. Uh, another is Sesame Street. I'd be remiss if I don't ask you about the late great Dr. Seuss, and uh, and and the same thing. Uh, give us your impression and and how did you first meet? And uh, you know, I assume it was through uh, through the book world. Yes, indeed. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, my dad Bennett Surf. He was well known to everyone for being on What's My Line, but his day job and what he cared about most was publishing. And he started Random House and ran it for many, many years. And Dr. Seuss was one of his early authors, and uh, Ted Geisel uh, stayed with him the whole time. You know, uh, and my mom actually knew Ted Geisel before my dad did because she had a job at McCann Erickson before she met my father. And uh, that's where Ted Geisel was doing his advertising drawing. And they shared a desk, if you can believe it, because Ted only came in on occasion. Uh, he worked from home. So Ted and my mom shared a desk at McCann Erickson Advertising. So uh, my family knew him well, and that's how I got to know him. But my mom started beginner books with Ted, you know, those easy-to-read books for kids who who uh, didn't have anything to read except Dick and Jane books. That was the idea. They wanted to make those more fun, and they sure did. And uh, when I got out of college, I went to work with them for a while. So that's how I got hooked. Just a, It's a who's who <clears throat> of, uh, of the times. If you think about it back then, and, and when you when you group those names together, you group the the great brand of Sesame Street, what it is now, and as compared to what uh, you know what people may have uh, may have anticipated it being, uh, you mentioned Dr. Seuss, and uh, just uh, you know, <laughs> what more can you say about Dr. Seuss? And you mentioned uh, in the same breath National Lampoon. And uh, the the first thing I thought of when uh, when Christopher Surf, who is our very special guest, by the way, um, when you mentioned National Lampoon, one of the first things I thought of was Saturday Night Live and the impact that that still has, and that's still uh, you know still going and still going strong. When you talk about those two shows in the same breath, Sesame Street and that and and Saturday Night Live, and you're really. Uh, you, you're there. You're a witness to history. You're a participant in history, in both 
um, both avenues and and do the national lampoon. Uh, and let let me just say before we uh, before we uh, continue, we're taking a quick break. Christopher Surf is our very special guest, and. Frank McKay here, but much more importantly, uh, the the award-winning um, uh, musician, composer, lyricist, and uh, just what a career this man has had. Christos, uh, Christopher Surf, uh, more with him and Sesame Street when we get back right after this. I'd like to welcome everyone back to Breaking It Down. Frank McKay here, so much more importantly, Christopher Surf is our very special guest and if you missed the first half please uh binge binge it or go back and and review it um what what a tremendous uh amount of information you can get from someone who is uh, who has been at it uh for a long time for a young guy and uh, he has everything <laughs> everything you well it's great to be here frank thanks again Right before the break, we were we were talking about Dr. Seuss, and the, you know, I mean, the the impact that Dr. Seuss ha- has had is uh, is just tremendous. I, what can you tell us about Dr. Seuss that we we may not know? I know that you know some of his books are being canceled, and 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 certain things are are being uh, uh, objected to now in in modern. Uh, uh, you know, in, in modern day times, but uh, what what can you tell us about Dr. Seuss that we don't know? Well, I think you know you you brought up the objections some people have, and uh, there are when you when you look back, there are some drawings that certainly you'd have to say were racially insensitive uh, stereotypes, you know. But but I think it's important to hear those things in context. Uh, Ted was in. A very progressive politically. He he did a lot of political cartoons for the very liberal New York newspaper PM, and he was violently anti-war. If that's not an oxymoron, strongly so. And he would never have done anything on purpose that was considered offensive. Uh, I know I looked back at one of his books, Miguel Gets Pool, because that was one of the books that's been, quote, banned, end quote. And I saw what was considered objectionable in that, and that was that he had a character in it that he called an Eskimo, which is a term that we don't use anymore, and I understand why we don't use it, but that was the only term that people knew then. And it was not a, he didn't offend the person in the book, he just called him that. And he wouldn't do it now. So, you know, some of that is kind of over over the top, I think. But then again, some of the ways he depicted Japanese or Chinese Americans were insensitive. Of course, in the context of World War II, you might understand some of that, but it doesn't make it right. And I think Ted would be the first person to agree that he shouldn't have done it. You know, we live and learn as a society, and and uh, and Ted is, uh, you know, way uh, way ahead of the curve on so many uh, so many situations. And I'm sure, uh, if he was na- here now, he may agree. He may uh, g- gladly agree that uh, he doesn't. The last thing in the world uh, he would ever wanted to do is to. Uh, well, he might make fun of the people saying some of it. Right. <laughs> but the, some of it. Some of it's justified, but some of it is a little over the top, as I said. But. But, uh, you know, uh, think of what, what he wrote, like the 
the Lorax about environmentalism or or the Butter Battle book or the Sneetches about prejudice or Horton Hears a Who about paying attention to to the marginalized people. He was certainly on the right side of all those issues. Yeah, no question about it. Uh, Sesame Street, uh, it, you know, it has been a big uh, topic of our conversation here, and you could say the same thing about Sesame Street. I mean, they have they have touched on on uh, subjects that you never thought in children's television would ever uh, ever talk about. But again, you grow with the times, and and thankfully, thankfully, uh, uh, Joan Cooney and uh, and and the others and uh, understood the uh, the impact that they would have christopher surf once again is our very special guest and uh frank mckay here much more importantly chris surf when you when you talk about what sesame street uh, has taken on over the years what do you look back and what are you most proud of that uh, that you could point to and say I, I mean, that's a hard question, I imagine, because there's a lot. Of, uh, well, there's, a lot there's 50, 50 years of things to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but what popped out I in was, your mind? Yeah. Well, a couple of things. Generally, the idea that television could be used to achieve something positive was an amazing thought at the time. Uh, it was People may have forgotten this now, but at the time, the television was called the boob tube. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Newton Minow wrote a famous essay about uh, the, a vast wasteland, is what he called television. And John Cooney and John Stone, who deserves credit because he had so much to do with what Sesame Street became creatively, they realized that, hey, television, maybe television could do something good if we just try and somebody's willing to put it on the air. And thank goodness uh, people were willing to fund it, uh, like Carnegie and others. And uh, the US Department of Education put a lot of money into the experiment. And it was an experiment. And they ended up doing a show that not only taught letters and numbers to kids who were not learning them, but just because they showed a bunch of people of different races and ethnicities living on a street where a bunch of crazy different colored monsters also lived. They didn't really have to preach anything. They just showed it. And uh, that was revolutionary because there weren't very many integrated casts on, on television at that time for adults or kids. And Sesame Street didn't say, hey, we're doing this. They just did it. And everyone loved it. Since the fact they didn't say, hey, we're doing this, and you were involved from the from the beginning. Were you surprised when it became an issue the uh, the the idea of race and integration? Uh, were you surprised when that became an issue, or were you all anticipating that quietly? I think I think we probably expected it to be a, an even bigger issue than it was in some ways. That was hard to remember. I wasn't there the first day. I got there very early. But the show had started and had been on a few months when I got there. So I don't want to take credit for sure. things that John Stone and others did before me. But but I think the general feeling was that we knew there were going to be people who objected, and th some of them did. Uh, and there was a man that I should credit while we're talking about all this, a professor at Harvard named Chet Pierce, who 
made sure that that we didn't miss an opportunity to do you know the the uh, the stuff about race and and uh, tolerance as well as the the obvious things about letters and numbers but everybody wanted to do that you know that's one reason we all signed up the first song that you submitted to Sesame Street that was uh, that was actually played uh, do you remember what it was or, or was it I sure do what was it I sure do it was a song called Count It Higher which showed a, that Jim Henson one of the biggest thrills of my entire life to this day built a little puppet that looked like me kind of had big glasses and banged pianos and had long blonde hair which I had at the time and uh he played the song, and I got to sing it, too. It was just about having to count up to 10. You couldn't stop at three. And it was kind of uh, in the style of Twist and Shout. And uh, my little Muppet, Jim, actually manipulated it. And Frank Oz was part of the piece, too. And uh, I got to write it because uh, Joe Raposo, who was the music director, went to Harvard with me. And he said, hey, guys, you know, Chris came here. To, to write other things and work on books and things. But, you know, he wrote a lot of funny songs while he was Harvard, and he knows rock and roll. And he, Joe, didn't know rock and roll. He knew how to do everything else brilliantly, but he didn't really know rock and roll very well, even though it was easier to play in many ways than the concertos he could play without even thinking about it. But he let me try, and I came up with this song, and everyone loved it. So they let me start doing more. And, uh, you know, 50 years later, here I still am. Could imagine. And we're talking Sesame Street. We're talking National Lampoon. We're talking Saturday Night Live and Dr. Seuss and all, all of these. Uh, you know, it look, it has, has a touch. When I mentioned Saturday Night Live, it's uh, the predecessor to that or the, the really uh, springboard to that was National Lampoon. Chris was writing for that. But once again, Emmy Award winning and Grammy Award winning Christopher Surf. Yeah, and 50 years later, we're, we're talking to Christopher Surf, and uh, he, he had mentioned the uh, uh, the I impact. It, it's making a tremendous impact, Street Gang. And I purposely, knowing that I was going to speak to uh, Chris, I, I didn't watch it. I just didn't want to. I, I just didn't want to do a uh, a rehash of of, re uh, of Street Gang. But I'm dying to watch it. Um, uh, it. Chris urges everybody to see it. I urge everyone to see it. Uh, and I imagine uh, that a lot of um, what we're talking about is going to be uh, going into more in depth there. Uh, I just didn't want to be flavored by it. I didn't want to be uh, you know, influenced. But uh, well, thanks for that. But I think you know what people will get in addition to some of these same thoughts is you get to see the Muppets and John Stone in the studio, and it's hysterically funny to watch what you know when when uh, there were bad takes. Instead of stopping, the Muppets would just go crazy because they knew it wouldn't end up on the show anyway. So all kinds of things that you would never see, they would do. Like Frank and Jim just made fun of each other mercilessly. And that's part of the fun of seeing the film. You know, I, I don't know, and I'm not asking you to tell tales out of school, but, I mean, there's there's been all types of 
uh, stories that came out of Saturday Night Live and, and National Lampoon, uh, where, you know, again, uh, remember what time this was. You know, this is 1969. What, was there anything you could share with us uh, that, uh, that I, I don't know, that wouldn't be uh, taboo to, to talk about or it wouldn't bother you to talk about? But uh, was there any drug use on the, the set of Sesame Street? Was that Oh, absolutely not. No. no. Oh, interesting. National Lampoon is another story, yeah. which we can talk about. But, oh, no. Not not on Sesame Street at all, and uh, you know not because we made a point of it. I think it just wasn't wasn't who we all were. I mean, uh, casual druggies like marijuana, sure, I'm sure people did that, but not when we were shooting. Yeah, there there seem everything that I've read and heard and uh, and has been told to me. There seemed to be a, a respect for the fact that, hey, this is, at, at the root of it all, this is a kid show. This is an educational show. And it, it seemed that, I, I, I always assumed that Joan Cooney was was the one that was kind of, you know, you mentioned she was the mother of Sesame Street, but that she kind of set the pace uh, as much as anybody there. Is that is is it correct to, to say that everyone kind of followed her lead? Absolutely. It, I mean, absolutely, because she was the president as well as the founder. But she gave the creative people a lot of free reign to be silly. Uh, the the way the whole show was put together is really Joan's idea. And another guy that deserves immense credit, more than he gets these days, is a, a guy named Jerry Lesser, who was a professor of early childhood education at Harvard. And Jerry really convinced Joan, didn't take much convincing, that it was possible to have the top educators in the country work with the top creative people in the country without having to find people that knew both. That was what really made the show work. If you tried to find teachers who could write jokes, you would have been limiting yourself. Or if you tried to find really funny people who knew a lot about education, you might have found two or three people in the whole country who qualified. But if you had, you got these people talking to each other and helping each other and only being the boss of their own area, in other words, the educators saying, here's how to teach this, but we won't tell you what funny jokes to tell while you're doing it. That's what made it work. And we found the people who loved working together that way. And, uh, you know, it kind of worked by itself after that. John Stone is the creative genius whom I mentioned earlier, but John and Jim did crazy humor. They didn't just write for kids, you know, so they made sure they were enjoying themselves every bit as much as the audience was supposed to enjoy it. That was key. Do you remember a, a moment or an instance where where uh, something was <clears throat> shot down uh, that uh, that it was really debated whether they were going to use it but they shot it down because uh, of of what may have been uh, controversy coming, or, or maybe you know something that could have affected the Grant or, or the uh, the Carnegie uh, folks wouldn't have been uh, wouldn't have been happy. PBS wouldn't have accepted. But do you remember any? any well, there was no PBS yet. That's important to point out. Yeah. PBS happened later, partly as a result of Sesame Street, within a few years. But but I but your question is well taken. I think we all knew there were certain places we couldn't go, 
but we went further than most people would have ever thought we could go. And Jim didn't have the Muppet Show yet. But once he did, then some of the really crazier things ended up there, you know, things that didn't teach but were just funny. Uh, but yeah, there were things that we did early that we took off the show. Like there was a bit where we were teaching body parts and uh, Bert sang a song called I Want to Hold Your Ear to his girlfriend, whoever she was at the time, a puppet. And he would just pull off the parts of her body and hold them up for the kids to see. And we quickly realized that that was horrifying to kids. <laughs> so that didn't last very long. Yeah. And there was a guy that used to sell letters from inside his raincoat yes. and would come up to Ernie and say, hey, would you like to buy an O? And people realized that that was probably closer to a porn reference than we ought to go. So <laughs> that disappeared. And later on, there were things that offended people, sometimes surprisingly to me, that were taken off. Like uh, Norm Stiles, who was head writer at the time, and I wrote a song called The Alphabet Polka that John Candy came on and performed in his Polish character, Josh Mengi, yeah. as a Polish band member. And we had a ball doing it, but the minute it came on the show, the Polish Anti-Defamation League decided we were stereotyping Polish music. And I thought that was a little over an overreaction, but it got taken off. And uh, we got complaints that about uh, a number we did uh, just to show you how far this can go. I wrote a song about zero, where a goat kept eating things down from five five uh, sneakers to four sneakers to three sneakers till he got to zero sneakers. And uh, that was the piece. And the, the dairy farmers organization complained that go, dairy goats didn't eat sneakers. So we put out a disclaimer that it wasn't a dairy goat, a dairy goat that was eating the sneakers and we left it on but you never know <laughs> yeah just uh, honestly fascinating <laughs> we we need more time than than what we're allotted here but uh just uh, maybe i can get a part two and a part three with you what what a uh, honestly uh, what a history lesson we're getting here christopher surf is our very special guest frank mckay here we have a couple moments left with the the emmy award winning and uh, and grammy award winning um, uh, musician, composer, lyricist, and and again, uh, Sesame Street has been our uh, our uh, subject for the most part. Has been our subject uh, today, Chris. Uh, I, I heard that divorce, uh, the the subject of divorce was a uh, was a heavy topic uh, early on with Joan Cooney, and uh, and they didn't know how to address it. Um, can you shed any light on that, right or wrong? Sure, sure. Actually, after we, we did a show which with another subject that people were afraid to address, when Wu Lee, the wonderful actor who played Mr. Hooper, died, we had to figure out how to deal with his, his not being on the show anymore. And Norm Stiles, the head writer, who I mentioned before, and the others decided to take it head on. And uh, Big Bird learned that Mr. Hooper had actually died. And it was one of the most uh, moving and important shows we ever did. Then there was a thought of doing the same thing about divorce, but we never got it right. And so things were written, but they were never broadcast because nobody liked 
what came out of that. So that's a subject that at least uh, in my recollection has never been done, though it may have been done more recently, and I just don't know about it. Chris, I, I don't know if you can give, give us a quick list uh, of some songs that you're most proud of, just a, a quick rundown uh, of some songs that are going to ring a bell to uh, to the people listening that uh, that you were proud of uh, writing or co-writing. Well, of course, it depends when you watched, because uh, you know, depending how old your kids were, different years they would have seen different songs. But having said that, I guess "Put Down the Ducky" seems to be a song that everyone remembers. Uh, and I wrote a song that I love called The Word Is No. Uh, another one called Monster in the Mirror that had a lot of celebrities on it as they put down the ducky. So people remember that one. And earlier, Dance Myself to Sleep was a song that Bert, Ernie sang that kept Bert awake because he kept dancing to put himself to sleep and waking Bert up in the process. So those are a few of them. But I've, I've written like two or three hundred of them for Sesame, so hard to pick. Yeah, what, what a <laughs> honestly, what what a wonderful, wonderful career. Uh, before I let you go, there, there was there's there's this uh, I don't know if it's an internet conspiracy or uh, or if it's a, a, there's some truth um, or if it's based on some truth. But there is a, a show, isn't there a lost episode of Sesame Street? That um, that people talk about and and people dispute whether they've ever seen it or was it a lost skit? Uh, do you know what I'm talking about? I might know that, that I've heard about this and I can't remember what the skit was. To be honest, though, I could look it up. Yeah, there was a skit that was shown only a couple of times, and I know there was a whole podcast about it. It was terrible, but I don't think it was banned. I think kids were scared of it. It might have been Wanda the Witch, but it might not have been. Uh, that was a W sketch that had witches in it. But whatever it was, uh, I don't think it was a big controversy at the time. And eventually it might have been decided that it was too scary, so we'll stop reusing it. I, honestly, what a, what a wonderful, wonderful career uh, you are having and have had uh, just... Uh, just amazing and just an honor to have you, uh, Christopher Surf. Uh, terrific. Do you have a website, a social media site, and also um, if you want to share that with us? And if not, anything else that uh, that you're working on or that we haven't touched on that we should know about? Well, you mentioned Between the Lions, but that's a show we had on PBS for 10 years as well. It teaches reading to kids, and you can find some of those videos from that on YouTube. Of course, all the Sesame Street stuff, all the songs we mentioned and just about every other one you can find on YouTube. So I certainly recommend that. Uh, our company that did Between the Lions is called Serious Thinking, spelled like the star, a bad pun, just like Between the Lions teaching reading is another bad pun. And uh, you can look up seriousthinking.com and find links to some of these things. Uh, for starters, that's a good good thing to know. And we're, we're working on putting Between the Lines into schools now, especially with COVID. <clears throat> Parents need things that teach reading to their kids. So we're working with Johns Hopkins University to get all that out there to schools and homes so kids can still use it. So I could talk for another whole show about all this, but that's a, that's a little of it. 
Well, let me let me uh, get you to promise that we can get a part two with you one day, and and uh, I just I could talk to you forever, uh, Christopher Surf. Uh, congratulations on an amazing career and all the success, and thank you very much for being here. Oh, thank you so much. It's fun for me to talk about, as you can probably tell. Uh, no question about it. And what a career, folks, this man has had and uh, between the Lions, of course. But, I mean, everything else that we have just mentioned. And he was a witness and a participant in history. And uh, I could talk to this man all day long. Uh, multiple Grammy Awards and multiple Emmy Awards for uh, for his writing, his uh, songwriting and and composing, lyricist, uh, extraordinaire. Uh, just absolutely wonderful to talk to Christopher Serp. Uh, Frank McKay signing off. We'll see you all next time on Breaking It Down. <laughs>